hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Sunday Sessions, 19th of July, 2020. And hooray, we're outside. Well, thank you all for joining us for another Sunday session. Those of you watching live on Facebook and on YouTube. And as usual on a Sunday, this is our time for exploring. And sometimes there's even a side dish of bardic storytelling and poetry. And I do have a little bit of medieval poetry for you coming up shortly. Well, eventually. Well, today is one of my four Orm sessions. If any of you uh, joined in the Orm session, I can't remember when it was. Was it early April? It just went on and on. I, it was just me with a, uh, I just had a mobile phone, just no notes, just rattling on, and it went on uh, forever. And, uh, oh, I haven't put the do not disturb on, so please don't send me messages. There we go. And uh, so I decided to split it into four and, uh, well, I think you'll find this one might be just as long. I hope you can stay with me with this. But this is local. It's, it kind of centers on local. And it's titled Ohm, the Ballymolt Bard Story. Now, uh, Ballymolt is a town uh, that's 10 kilometers, seven or eight miles away from here. And I'm going to explain how this was seen to be quite central to the Ohm studies, a lot of the Ohm studies that people do. So through the session, I intend to cover a bit of background to the book of Ballymote. I'm not really a scholar on this, but I think I can give you enough background on it. A little bit about the arrival of the Orm tree language as it came into Ireland. And Orm as it was used possibly for sound notation and Orm's possible connection to local bardic folklore. Now, I see some of you are around. Lovely to thank you for joining in. Let's see who we've got here. Sandra Elizabeth, good day to you too. Kimberly's here. Good afternoon to you from Boston. Uh, thank you for being here. Oh, this is lovely. Uh, and I, we're outside, outside at last. I feel a lot more comfortable outside than I do doing this uh, from the kitchen. So I hope this is going to be a little bit better and I hope uh, you will enjoy it. So the Book of Ballymalt, hmm. uh, what is it really? There we go. That's from the Book of Ballymote. There's a page from it where there's a dog chasing a rabbit. Uh, the Liban Ballon Mortar. Uh, scribed at the end of the 14th century at the castle of Ballymote. And uh, there's a, a lovely aerial view. And it was the time when the chieftain, whoever was the boss there, Tonalt McDonough. And the Book of Ballymote itself was quite late. Uh, in the medieval scribing traditions, uh, the uh, chief compiler, Manus uh, O'Dagnan, uh, was from a family of scribes to the McDonough's and the McDermott's, two clans, two families very much local to this area. And there's a bit of an artist expression there uh, of the O'Dagnan man. Let's see if we can get him. There he is, and scribing away there, and uh, a bit of his page there. And other scribes were Solomon. Oh, uh, Dromna, uh, he was from Fermanagh, and there's even a wee pick of him. There's he hard at work there. I like the chair. <laughs> and, uh, and it seems there was another one that sort of came in later, a Robert McSheedy. And uh, no, that's the wrong picture. Where is Robert? There we go. And we've got Robert there uh, who's contemplating, and that's like sort of bubbles out of his head, it seems, of what he's going to be actually scribing. And uh, I love this artist's impression, all three of them here in the scriptorium. And that's the way that scriptoriums uh, look like. Uh, now, at this point, it's probably worth saying uh, that if you go into Ballymore, there is the coach house. It's a lovely place. It's a hotel and a bar. It's still not open yet, but I, th I haven't got the date, but it's imminent. It's going to be in uh, this month sometime. Uh, it may, may well be to today is it today someone might be able to send me a comment is it today we're very close to the opening 
And it's a place, if you come to Ballymote now, that you can pop in and you can enjoy the new Irish tradition of the substantial nine euro meal uh, that you have to have before you can have a pint or two. It's well popping in there. And if you actually go into the lobby there, ask the reception, they'll point you to it. There's actually lovely big wall coverings of the um, Book of Ballymote. And the OEM page, which I'll be showing you, is right up there, up against the wall. And it's worth studying because you'll see it a lot better than what uh, I'm saying here. But as I say, this was a late book and uh, it was a compilation of older loose manuscripts, most of these famous books like Kells and uh, Durrow, so forth, they were done early medieval. This was late medieval, but the scribes in the area, they did scribe various manuscripts. And this was like a best of a compilation that was handed down through the McDonough family, through their clan. And uh, it's quite a mishmash. Um, oh, uh, so, and the first one I gather for the first page, and I, I showed it earlier, is this sort of picture. Quite, <laughs> I find it quite amusing away. This is a, an artist's impression of medieval times, and I think it's a, it was a few hundred years old by the time it got into the Book of the Malimol. And this is Noah's Ark that's conceived by one of the scribes. And it appeared in a, a later book, and I can't remember the name of it, uh, in a much in sort of sketchy form. Uh, and that's an artist's impression of what the whole thing looked like. And then from there, it went into a bit of uh, interpretation of, of Jewish people, their stories and traditions, because this is what came in with the scriptures. You know, where did these scriptures come from? They had to verify the value of them. And uh, it seems that the medieval scribes and abbots were keen to introduce Jewish tradition, especially banking. Now, the ages of the world um, follow that, uh, which is a Jewish interpretation. And there's stuff in there about St. Patrick and Cormac McCart, who's quite a local legend. I'll speak a little bit about that later. And then what was called uh, the tri Triads of Ireland. Um, and the triads it said that they put together was geography, customs, uh, traditional customs, and law which was in really still on the cusp of Brehan law. And there was this new sort of Jewish Middle Eastern style law coming in. So late medieval was kind of balancing between the two because the Normans had come in and they were using the, the Middle East sort of template and trying to overcome the old Brehan laws, uh, which I think is a very sad thing. I'll be talking about that uh, a bit later, but you might've heard of the triads of Ireland, there's other triads, uh, there's some here and another there. Now, moving on with the Book of Ballymote, there are sagas of uh, Finn McCool, there has to be, and even especially there he is, Brian Baru. Uh, he's, there's some tales of him. And what's important to us for our session today is it's quite a description about the profession of the poet, of the bard. And uh, there's, there's a sort of poet impression of the poet bard at the time. And then it, from there, it goes on to some Greek stuff, such as the destruction of Troy, uh, the wanderings of Ulysses, Nestor's speech to the Greeks. But I'm gonna go back to the professions of a poet, of a bard. And what's very related to this is the Orm written language. And that's what really the subject is. Now, as I've waffled on that, let's see if anybody's had to say there's Donna there. Hello, good morning. And Shell's there. Good day to you too. It's a lovely, yes, it is. We've actually got some sun. That's why outside. First time for a few weeks. Absolutely loves it. And we've got someone from Ireland. Hi, Bianca. <laughs> so that's uh, wonderful. Uh, you're grouping together. I'm glad to, uh, that you're all here. Um, so anyway, um, let's get on with the Orm. Now, uh, I don't know if any of you watched the uh, Ted Cook video that I had up earlier. And uh, he was uh, interesting. He sort of uh, got my, uh, I've got to do a bit of uh, clicking here. Um, excuse me while I find my road here. There we go. 
sorry, uh, here we go. Buttons galore. There we go. And Ted Cook, here he is. There's Ted planting an oak tree. He absolutely adores oak trees. He's got 32 acres of native woodland, and I think he's probably got quite a few uh, oak trees there. But he was saying how the OM is actually a recent language, and he claims there's much more recent than the origins of the garlic of the Gaelic. Uh, anyway, there's quite a, you know, that, there's quite a discussion on that. I give these OM talks, and uh, come on. I give these OM talks, and it's really from the little stories I picked up. What do you, I haven't got a picture of the cover, unfortunately. Uh, we have one lad who's actually moved into just outside uh, Boyle, and uh, he, uh, God, how can I forget his name? <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Brain dead on that. Um, John Paul. I know it was just a Sean Paul. I'll get it later. But look out for a book called The Poet's Orm. And he spent 12 years in intense research into this. And uh, if you're really keen on the Orm, look at Patton, John Paul Patton. Uh, look out for that. And that's a huge study. What you're going to hear from me is stuff that I've picked up from storytellers, um, people I've met and discussed along the way. Anyway, Ted Cook, he says it's uh, medieval. Well, he's got some, uh, not medieval, he says uh, it goes back to the Iron Age. And there's some sense in that because the earliest reflection we've got on the Orm that we can physically see is actually of these Orm figures on stones. And these are stones from the Iron Age. But if you think about it, Iron Age was about creating iron. And it required chopping down quite a few trees to create the charcoal to create the iron. And they couldn't really chip away at these stones without having some iron. So there's the thing. We think it's perhaps Iron Age because they could actually chip in the stones. When you think of oh, most people, they think of the stones. But was there something before that? Um, now I'm going to talk more about this. I'm going, I've got to talk on the stones, on the Om stones sometime at the end of September. So I'll move along from that. And here's an artist's impression of a stone. And you might be familiar with some in your area. But the stories that I've heard, it takes the Orm back to the Bronze Age, to the Tour de Donan, and a, a, a character called Oma. Some people say Ogma. And uh, here's an artist's impression. And interestingly, he's got some way of chipping away at stone there, but that's, uh, that's just for, I suppose, license for the artist who did that. But fascinating, you might have been familiar with my almost tale of the trees, which I'm not actually going to cover in this session. I'll go on forever. Now, the thing with the, the Tour de Danon, now, Alma, he was, the way I understand it, he was a brother of the Doida, Dagda, and I've got a lovely story of that to bring up in Sunday sessions, and Kian, who is known very much for his wooing of Athna and uh, for uh, up in Donegal. Uh, but uh, you'll know the story if you're familiar, the Tour de Danon, they were very much sort of uh, farming people and uh, organized farming. And they'd really started farming in the higher areas because they could get their food quicker. It took a long time to chop down trees, but eventually they did. They got down some trees. And then they, uh, there was that invasion by the Milesians, the Sons of Meal. And there's an artist's impression. Uh, there's one man there waving uh, his spear, but the, uh, it looks like the, the thing that sent the Tour de Don and Underground is when they brought the Pipers in. Uh, so we have the Piper left, so they attacked uh, with the Piper. Now, the one thing about the uh, Milesians, the Sons of Mill, Milesius, is they're, they're known, they come from Iberia, but they're known from the name, from their language. They brought in what we know as the... Gaelic, the Gaelic language, and it was a language of trees. So they were tree people that had come in, and it was sort of conflict with the Tour de Danon in a way, who were chopping down trees 
for uh, farming, which is strange because people know the Tour de Dan and the Ferry Folk. But I've covered that on other Sunday sessions, how that came about. But anyway, let's focus on them being tree people. So the Gaelic then sort of arrived with them. And, uh, and what came with that is communication. The whole idea of Orm is a need for a learned language because families had their own sort of grunts and ways of talking to each other. But if they tried to talk to the next door neighbors, they probably didn't understand a word they said. Uh, so uh, there was this need for a language that could be duplicated. And this is where the Omer came in because it said that he perhaps used uh, hand signals to start with. I don't know. It's interesting there is 20 symbols with the original and you can really knock out 20 symbols by the way that you mess around with your hand. And I would imagine because the two of the Danon were very much uh, into their measurements, calibrations, they were, could put sticks. They knew how to put sticks at equal distances and the language would build up from that kind of logical language. And so people would be educated, learn this, communicate with others. So there we have the first division of scholars and people who didn't learn stuff. So I imagine that was quite a division. Anyway, in comes the Piper and the Marauding Spearman there with their 18 symbols. And the language they brought in, it was going, it was, I don't know if it was linear or not, but the one thing about it was that it actually had 18 symbols that were symbols of trees. Now, this is uh, a sort of a Latin, a modern way of looking at it, because the way uh, that they did it is that, that they put all the vowels at the end. This one, it starts off uh, with the A vowel, but uh, they actually started off with Beth and they had the hazel and they, they moved on. And then the, the oak very early on in their alphabet. And if you study the orn, those trees are, are way down. So they came in with these 18. And certainly in Scotland, if people learn in the garlic there uh, at school, uh, they recite the 18 trees and they don't go a b c d they re actually recite the trees so that is a ch chart in sort of latin format and uh, vowels last but then the one thing we don't know did the early gallic early gaelic look like own symbols it's uh, it's very hard to tell um now the uh i think one of the clues of this and i haven't got any pictures is when you actually go to the Ohm stones, what they call the Ohm stones in Scotland, the pick stones, there is a bunch of symbols and there is a lot of engravings that people say are Ohm, but are they Ohm? Is it something of a different language? Have we applied the Ohm name as a convenience later? And that pick language would, would have been very similar, I think, to what the Tour de Danon and what Omer uh, and his students would have uh, followed. So it's a very vague area. And I think to describe that, we just use the word Ohm out of convenience. Um, I don't think they even thought of what it was called. It was probably some other word. And we haven't got the word for that anyway. Uh, but it, it is uh, familiar. So what do they look like in the book of Ballymalt? Um, now, I've, what have I got here? Now, there's a whole succession you'll see in the book of uh, Ballymold. And for some reason, the scribes there, they added extra symbols. And uh, there's sort of some dispute there because uh, what do they mean in cross-reference to the, uh, the 20 symbols? They even knock out, they even put an extra symbol into the 20 to make 21. And uh, there's interpretations of the symbols there. There's, they suddenly have one symbol for the poplar, and then uh, they have uh, another symbol for aspen. And really, poplar and aspen are much the same. Was it different? Well, one of them, the, uh, the silver poplar, for instance. And then there's the Ellen uh, that's uh, got all kinds of meanings. And I think the most common, the one I like, is for honeysuckle. And there's the last one they say is for gooseberries. Uh, I think that's for all berries. Anyway, it's a real mix-up. Go and have a look uh, at the uh, Ballymole page that you see in the coach house. 
or look it up on the arm. Uh, but look at going through uh, the Book of Ballymore, there it is. That's what one of the arm pages look like. And this is perhaps a very significant part of the whole book uh, because this is verification of the OM language actually existing. This is also verification that that language, that alphabet actually has a name. And it is, that's that point where it's been established as being called OM, I believe. Uh, and in that book, and this gets the mystical people really going when they see this bit from the page. And a lot of the mysticism has been pulled out from just this page. This is actually a bottom of a page. And there you see the arm in circles and in diagrams. And the way a lot of people have interpreted this is, oh, we can use this in divination. And a lot of people, when they use it in divination, they then apply the arm very much like an astrology chart. Instead of having the 12 signs, somehow they split the 20 original OM signs around the year and you're born under the sign of a tree of the OM and there's a whole delineation about that. I don't think it's to do with the cycle of a year. I personally think this is more to do with the cycle of our living, a cycle of our life. The reason we have things like rites of passage, uh, communion, and stuff like that. It's very much related to the different rites of passage as we go through our life. And it becomes like a bit of a cycle. Yes, we, we're born and we pass on again, but we go into a cycle. And I've covered this a lot in other Sunday sessions and we'll be covering, covering that a lot more. So this is not about seasons, but years of our life. Again, I've split this talk up and I'm gonna talk a lot more about this in the Sunday session in late November. Now, what, what have we got here? I, oh yeah, there's a little, I, I was talking last week about um, dragons, uh, serpents and snakes and how that was applied to medieval books and it didn't escape the book of Ballymore. And there we have a kind of a dragony uh, impression there drawn in, beautifully drawn in uh, to the book of Ballymore. And there's a few of them in there. But I think the important thing uh, here is how Ireland is from this late medieval time and because of the new rules have become a forest people that suddenly were without a forest. And from late medieval, Ireland was a, a country, a tree people without a forest. They had very few wildwood trees left. And there is a, a sort of the myth, the regular myth that uh, in came Cromwell and uh, he took all the trees, but there were a lot of people in Ireland taking trees before them. The Iron Age was a big one. Certainly the Normans, uh, they took them for construction and building, but the Iron Age was really quite a big one. And I have heard that when Cromwell came here, uh, supposedly for the trees, the Spanish, had, what was left, the Spanish had built, uh, beat him to it. Uh, for picking up uh, and trading in the oaks and the strong uh, woods. So um, I th I said there would be a bit of uh, poetry here, and let's see if I can get on with that. Um, because there's a, a medieval poem from the time of the Book of Ballymote. I'm going to try and read it here uh, from the um, bone, which is uh, small letters. So bear with me this is a medieval uh poem and it's actually called the fairy king's advice on trees and i'm going to put the picture up of uh, a kind of a wonderful wildwood tree this a wildwood tree is a tree that naturally plants itself where an acorn through nature uh through falling in the wind through dropping or through being moved by a rabbit or some other uh bird or animal and it just finds its own place and grows. That's what a wildwood is, and that's what is so rare in Ireland. So here we have the fairy king's advice on trees. The plant woodbine honeysuckle, if thou burn, wailings for misfortune will abound. One extremity of weapons, points, or drowning in great waves will follow. So burn not the precious apple tree of spreading and low sweeping bough tree ever decked in bloom of white against whose fair head of all men put forth the hand. The Shirley Blackthorn is a wanderer 
a wood that the artificial burns not throughout his body, though it be scanty, birds in their flocks will warble. The noble willow burn not, the tree is sacred to poems, and within this, oh, I got to show off on this, there, the willow, because of course we're in a temple of willow here, and within the blooms the bees are a-sucking, all love the little cage, and this is this willow cairn, I love that line. The graceful tree with the berries, the wizard's tree, the rowan tree, but spare the timber tree, burn not the slender hazel. Dark is the color of the ash. That's timber that makes the wheels go. Rods the furnish, the horseman's handle. His form turns battle into flight. And then tenderhook among the woods is the, the spiteful briar as it burns him that is so keen and is so green. It cuts the flays the foot and advances the forcefully dragged backwards. Fiercest heat giver of all timber is the green oak. From him not may escape unhurt. By partially for him the head is sat on aching and by his acrid embers the eyes are made sore. Of course oak sometimes used for fire walking. And there's order, very battle witch of all woods, a tree that is hottest in the flight. Well, for it to be hot, it really has to be dry, I tell you. Undoubtedly burn thy discretion, both the order accompanied by the white thorn. Burning the white thorn, burning the Oh, goodness me, that's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but, uh, so, but, but holly, burn it green, holly, burn it dry. Of all trees whatsoever, the critically best is holly, an elder that have brought bark tree that in truth hurts sore. Him that furnishes horses to the armies from the she, burn so that he be charred. Well, the elder is the tree of the she. And uh, a lot of us think the hawthorn is. Interesting story on that. The birch as well, if he be laid low, promises abiding fortune. Burn up the most sure and certainly the stakes that bear the constant pods. Put on the hearth, if it is so please thee, the russet aspen to come headlong down. Burn, be it late or early, the tree with the praised branch. Patriarch of long-lasting woods is the yew, and it's sacred to all feasts, so it is well known. Of him now builds ye darkened vats of godly size. So, that's a waffle through the fairy king's advice on trees. Let's go on to the brehon the Brehan laws of the Bronze Age. Now that's fascinating. That comes with the trees, that comes with the orm, that comes with the garlic language. And the Brehan is the Gaelic foundation uh, the, of how to live, how to be balanced, how to treat everyone equal. And some of them, when you read through, they seem quite crazy. I know some of the examples is that um, if you uh, murder someone, uh, that uh, you have a mediator and the two parties get together and the mediator is there to mediate what you're going to give back in return for taking someone of the family away. And quite often the decision is to, you have to donate eight to 10 cows for murdering someone. Now, if someone stole the bars, shooting key, which was made out of metal, that could be 15 cows. And there's another case that I thought was lovely is like that of the beekeeper. And the beekeeper to have honey, the bees have got to spread over everybody's land all around. So a landowner might come and say, hey, beekeeper, your bees are, are over on my land, they're getting the blossom, uh, and you wouldn't have honey without that. So come on, you owe me some honey. And so through the Brehan laws, through the mediator, they will decide how to split up the honey. 
And uh, Brown Laws, apparently, uh, through story, uh, St. Patrick was quite keen on the Brown Laws. Though he was sort of bringing in the Middle East and Palestinian, he liked the Brown Laws and he kind of reformed them. And uh, though there wasn't much scribing going on in the time of Patrick, it wasn't long before the scribing came along. And of course, in Bridges' time, and especially Columkeel, then they would have been recorded and would have somehow intermingled uh, the ways of the Middle East, which is about conviction. Uh, it's about judgment and you get a punishment. Very different to the Brehan Laws, which is about back mediation and uh, between the two parties where they work it out, the judge works it out through the Middle Eastern style. And the one thing that's lovely about these, um, and now see if I got it, uh, get the picture of it, is that these um, these uh, courts, they were held under oak trees. And oak trees, uh, they weren't inside in buildings, they had to be under an oak tree because the oak tree was known as a billet tree. And I've come across in the, in the session, the billet tree uh, starts off from a story that Miletius, uh, the mill, the father of the sons of mill, that his father was half hazel tree. And uh, so that's said to be how they became people of the trees because there wasn't a separation from the tree. So the grandfather of the sons of mills was a hazel tree. And uh, so they had to ha have a special precious tree, which was a tree that had been planted by nature, not by humans. And the biggest and the most oldest of them was where court was held because that was the mother. That was what was holding the family that's what held the clan together was this billet tree because the half hazel grandfather his name was billy <laughs> not billy not william billy <laughs> uh and uh, later on when the clans they established their billet tree uh marauding other clans who were invading uh the worst thing that could happen is them to pull down chop down their billet tree or a storm bring it down because suddenly that's the heart and life, uh, that's the womb of the whole family down it. And it's even more serious than uh, taking an army's flag away. But anyway, we have this court under the billet tree. Uh, and I think I'll take a pause to see what you're saying because I'm into a bit of a ramble. Who we got here? Oh, Claire's here, hello. Uh, uh, Claire Roach there, fascinating as usual. Thank you. Well, thanks for being here. And Star's here as well. Good morning. Uh, lovely to see you. Anyway, I better get on. Uh, next thing I'd like to talk, and I'm going to keep this one short because the time uh, is moving on a bit now. And uh, that is, you know, where, where are my um, buttons? There we go. And I'm going to move them. Is the OM notation, OM used as notation? Um, I'm trying to think, what's that picture up for? Oh, I, I was looking at a picture. I'll probably find out what that's for. There was a, it was said that um, speech and song were all the same. Today, I'm talking like this. I'm not singing about, oh, my, it's two different things. We, we sing a song and we speak in a sort of monotone voice and, uh, but it said that in the past, there wasn't that separation, that uh, we spoke in song. And uh, so in order to teach the Orm, that each of the Orm symbols was said to have a tone. I don't know what it is. I don't think anybody knows. It was a knowledge that wasn't passed down. We don't know what the notes of Orm are. But it said that each tree had a sound and I'm wondering how much that is inspired, because if you actually pay attention to a specific tree, if you actually sit and uh, you get into some sort of mindfulness, especially when there's a, a wind, you'll notice that the leaves rustling in one tree will sound very different to the leaves rustling in another tree. And I, I sometimes think, is this what contributed to um, the oh, coming from a tree language into notation now there's a famous story uh let's see if we uh we've got some sort of bard i'm kind of got my pictures all muddled up here so i'll catch up with them in in due course 
but um, there's a story, uh, and I'm going to uh, come into this one in more detail later when I cover the Iona story of the Oum. But uh, you might be familiar with the uh, stories of Columkill, that once he got to Iona, he was known as by the Latin Columba. And uh, the big story of Columkill, as far as Ireland's concerned, especially County Sligo is concerned, is that uh, the various places he studied, uh, one person he studied under was uh, some Finian. Now, some people think it was one some Finian, some say Finn. I think there was two of them, uh, maybe three. And uh, there's a story variation that uh, Columkill went back to where he studied in Moville at the head of uh, Strangford Lock. I personally think this was at another uh, monastery that he went back to. Uh, uh, Dromin, which is near RD, uh, which is quite famous in the Bridget story, you might be uh, familiar on that. I think that's uh, where it got established. So that's up in Louth. So we have these mixed up with the Finians and Finians, but the big story there was Columkeel, he wanted to go there because he had heard that there was a, they had scripted a book of Psalms there. And the book of Psalms I'm, I'm looking for pictures. I, I, I had some pictures of this, and I just obviously didn't put them up. Um, anyway, the Book of Psalms there said that his attraction was his, his Book of Psalms had notation, because you may be familiar that Psalms, they're songs. Uh, let's have a bard here uh, that's singing. Uh, let's imagine he's singing. There he is. Uh, he's singing a psalm there. Um, and here is a psalm here that I've got. And that is the psalm that's actually been put into notation. It's not the OM notation, but it's just to show that a psalm has notation. Now, what if that was in OM? That's something that Colin Keel would have understood. And uh, because he was quite a student of the OM or symbolic language that became known as the OM, which is strangely, he might have actually learned that from a German bard called uh, Gemmon uh, down there in County Meath when he was studying at Clonard. So this is where, where did the Orm name actually start? Was it just a bunch of symbols that were related to trees? And I think that's all it was understood as as well. And this Gemmon had uh, shown him that. So here was this sound of the trees with the Psalms. And I imagine that I can imagine Columkill getting really excited because he, he advanced uh, scribing and scriptoriums more than anyone before him. This is what he was very famous for. Anyway, he made a copy uh, of these psalms, possibly with this lovely notation, and uh, because he believed that any scripts needed to be copied, needed to be shared. But in those days, scriptoriums and scripts, they were currency. Uh, the, uh, a monastery would be able to establish themselves as a wealthy monastery just based on having a big book uh more than more precious than cows and this was sort of their prestige it was their hoard of gold and in a way this is what the book of ballymote was probably created for and let's get to all these papers that you've got mcdonald and let's put these all together and let's make this wealthy let's get some real estate out of this uh book and i think that's what the book of ballymote was for is to actually create wealth for the area rather than actually be a study uh, for scholars but of course it has become a study for scholars so uh, column keel is subscribing uh, this copy it's a very long saga which i'll leave to a session that's going to be at the end of january uh, the orman iona but it led up to the famous battle of the books uh, below ben bourbon and uh, as i say that's uh, another comments so let's see how you're doing here um anyone chatting no you now uh, i think at this point let's uh if i can ask if you can actually if you read watching this as an archive do li still leave your comments leave your questions they can come up in uh, future sessions i'd appreciate that uh thanks very much now i'm going to go into a the fourth and it's really the final slot of this uh, a lengthy thing, and uh, it's relating it to our very immediate area above Cache. And I'm really sort of stretching this in a way, but we have Cache Coran and uh, 
the hill of Kesh. And Koran, with different spellings uh, today, is very famous in stories being, I believe he was the son of the Doi, the son of Dagda, which would have meant that he was kind of the grandson of Omar. And uh, some say that uh, he was actually the son of the onset, but I don't go with that one. I'm going with Doida because there's a lovely story that I have shared in Sunday sessions and will in future around mid-winter of uh, the birth uh, of Koran. Um, uh, so this is not really uh, of uh, Orm, but certainly what I want to bring on is the idea of the Orm being, uh, well, there, well, there we go. Let's bring that picture up again and imagine that that is uh, Corin. And, uh, but I, and there's a lovely artist impression and uh, it goes way back. And this is the, whoops, the, this goes inside the Keish Caves. That is a very ancient picture and I can't remember where it came from. And that's from a, a, quite an old manuscript in itself. I think probably 16th, uh, 17th century, uh, a lovely picture. And, um, and here's one here that uh, and Martin Byrne, uh, if you're familiar, he sometimes takes groups up there. That's his wife. And his wife is one of three daughters who are all harpists, harper bards, and they are enchanters. So I'm thinking here of Orm as being a medium for enchantment. Uh, people who use the Orm today and they use it in divination, that is, seems to be their intent and purpose, is they believe that uh, the Orm is a gift from the goddess, a gift from the god, and it's here to be used uh, as an enchantment. But uh, what is an enchantment? Uh, I did, at Easter time, I do go over the three trees, the um, resurrection via the three trees, three trees, uh, where the three strains of melancholy, joy, and dreaming and those strains, they're really enchantment. And I'm, enchantment to me is connected with divination. So how was this bardic inspiration, this enchantment recorded? Was it recorded in something uh, similar to Oam? And uh, there we go, there's a, another bard there doing some serious enchanting and uh, To me, uh, bardic enchantment is an encouragement and an inspiration into experiencing, visioning, and living life head on, rather than entering into combat. So how do we enter into love rather than combat through enchantment? And that's a question I'm really diverting here, but. This is one purpose of Orm and the Bardic lore, how we can pull that together. And the enchantment to me is when we can actually see ourselves and our potential. And we can do this by a song, by a poem, through a tune, or throw them, throw them all together. And uh, to me, that's enchantment. We can go for an obstacle head on and accomplish stuff. And when we do that, we feel heroic. And when we do this, we go through all those three strains, don't we? We do go uh, through uh, the melancholy, joy, and dreaming. And through all those three strains, we're actually heading into things head on and we accomplish stuff. And don't we feel grand about it at the end of it? We feel heroic. And to me, by following ourselves through like that, that to me is enchantment. And I think enchantment is a process where we actually delight people. We delight someone. We could use enchantment to make people afraid, and people do do that. But to me, enchantment is to be full of wonder. Come on up. That's that woman, feeling of wonder. And when we actually encounter life, the enchantment is we're not here to serve an answer to questions. To me, Enchantment is a process of divination and using the tool of symbols such as the Oum. Let's get back to it. And uh, here we go. Let's get this one up. That's from the Oum, a tale of the trees. It's a process of poetry 
that becomes enchanting. Now I'm going to the uh, divination. I'm going to carry on in November about that. But I, I do feel that us humans, we're not really conscious beings. And te- uh, you might have heard that from the video uh, from Ted last week. And I believe that we really do need sanctuary uh, to reconnect. We really do. And I always bring this down to sanctuary because the center of all this is getting our, knowing our personal sanctuary, uh, whether it's the garden or a little woodland. But we need these aids to remind them, remind us that we are alive. We need sanctuary to motivate our unwinding from our sanctuary space. And I covered this with the serpent talk last week. We always need that sense of recharging and realignment and linear language i think gets in our way Uh, linear language regular latinized language it seems to create questions that are always demanding answers and always seems to create divisions there's always a beginning and an end i think we need language that explains less and interprets more and i think a tree Here's a nice tree. This is in Lockville. And I think a tree is something to hold of as a symbol of the Om. So you find a tree, hold on to that vision. And here I've got Dua the Oak here. And uh, I relate it to accountability as used for a judgment. Uh, as I mentioned, the oak there was very much the court uh, of the Brehan Law, where mediation took place. So I, what I suggest is flow with that enchantment, flow with your enchantment from your inspirations and see what part of your own personal story unfolds. I think there's a divine presence in every cell of our body that serves us with interpretation. And there's really no explanation for that. It just seems to be happened. And to me, that explains to us exactly what a tree is. And really, As uh, Ted Cook says, we can't actually accurately explain in detail what a tree is. Nobody can. It's impossible. But what we can define is what is the significance of having a tree, having trees around us. Now that's something we can imagine and we can interpret. So maybe it's OM that is a language that has moved us from trees to symbols. And I do believe that that might have been an important intent of the book of Ballymote. Yes, it became a valuable book, but is it a book that archived enchantments? And I'm going to come back to this in future Sunday sessions. So uh, I hope that made some sense, and I hope that inspired you in some way, because that's my own the Ballymote Bard session for you today. Thank you for watching. And uh, before I go, I'd like, uh, I'm going to go to the banners. This is banners time. Oh, I see there's one or two new comments. Hi, Marcella. I have a photograph of the, of thesis interpreting gnome. Oh, fantastic. Yes, uh, post that. And and with, uh, we might be, how about if we got you live in, and you can actually present that at another uh, um, session later on. That'd be uh, fantastic. I haven't quite finished yet. There's Donna there. Oh, yes. Enchantment is my favorite emotion. If we don't have enchantment, I don't think we can live. Uh, that's uh, how I, I, well, that's what I would think I was trying to put over anyway. And uh, Sandra inspired. Thank you for a wonderful session. So this is, I, uh, Thank you for, for actually uh, staying. And uh, let's get my buttons on this. Um, so uh, I, I go through the things here. Yeah, do join our Curry Sessions Facebook group. Um, I, uh, do look for that. And we got Curry Journal on YouTube. And also the audio version, I'm catching up with it. Look under Tree Sanctuary, that's uh, on Spotify. And Sunday Sessions are listed in the website karakorycottage.com and to keep this uh, sessions going and the gardens going there is the summer fundraiser you can do that through the paypal thanks very much uh, some of you listening have been great contributors and supporters thank you uh we're way ahead of that now let's let me uh, tell you what's coming up uh 
in the future weeks because I will hope you can participate in uh, some of the things that are, are coming up. Um, 26, that's next Sunday. Garland Sunday so, uh, stories. Uh, it's going to be inside because it's not very good weather forecast next weekend, unfortunately. And then on the 2nd of August, Lunasa Gathering. If you've got something to offer there, do approach me. Let's share you online like we did with the Create Poetry. And then the big one, 8th of August, the first half is gratitude. Hopefully I won't be doing much talking in that one. I want to hand that one over to you. So please, uh, we're going to be have more horsepower. Hopefully it'll be outside. There's going to be more horsepower where we can have up to 10 of you sharing the screen here and uh, explain to you what first, uh, explain your inspiration, what First Harvest is, um, what, you, uh, what your gratitude is. Right now, it's really incredible, abundant berry picking. Talk about your berry picking. Talk about your vegetable harvest. Talk about what is ready, what you're eating from the garden. And the, the gratitude of that, the First Harvest. So either approach me to speak live, share the session, or pre-recorded videos up to five minutes. Let's make this your session and one where I don't do the talking. So I'm going to have extra horsepower to be able to do this because I hope there's going to be more sessions that's more than just me talking. Uh, so uh, bring send your contributions to me uh, before I leave. Any more chats? Uh, I love all this chat from you today, and thank you for being here. You're uh, you're uh, full of your thanks here. And uh, so uh, I, it's time for me really to depart. And thank you all for watching Sunday sessions. Please keep the comments going, even if you're watching this after being uh, live. Enjoy a safe week. Enjoy a week full of wonder, inspiration, and celebrations, and your enchantments. So until next Sunday, play well. Bye-bye. <laughs>